This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by our good friends at Musicbed, licensing relevant music. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, editor-in-chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, managing editor of No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, producer at No Film School. It is July 14th, 2016, and on this week's show, we'll discuss the filmmaking community's response to recent challenging headlines in the U.S. around race and violence, plus clips from our interview with director Jeff Nichols, What's up with the Pokemon Go craze, some indie financial news, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly. We're coming to you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, and as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. We're kicking off on a serious note this week. Uh, Summer is slower for film news because it's off-season for TV, it's on-season for Hollywood blockbusters, and of course many indie films in production are, are hustling to finish for the Sundance submission deadline in the fall. That being said, national and international news is, from my opinion, almost overwhelmingly active right now. There's just so much going on. Um, here in the U.S., we're in an election season which is partly responsible for pushing the kind of internal tensions to a recent high. And our headlines here lately have just brought some of the biggest pain points in American society to the forefront, particularly in terms of guns and race relations. I mean, since our last episode alone, two more African-American men were shot and killed by police, one while selling CDs on the street and another during a routine traffic stop, seemingly innocuous activities. And in response, five police officers were shot by a sniper in Dallas. This might not seem directly related to film, but as we've said on the show many times before, we don't live in a bubble. And as always, the film community is responding. One of the most creative actions I've seen comes from political pranksters and video producers, uh, a group called Indiecline. They basically took over empty stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Uh, with names of black people killed by police officers in recent years, including Freddie Gray, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice. Um, they they replicated the style almost exactly and glued the letters down on the Hollywood stars. And basically on their blog, they said, the few men and women featured in this piece, along with the overarching issue that binds them together, are more important than any of the names embedded in a star on the Hollywood Boulevard. Other folks are taking more pragmatic steps. Um, Actress Issa Rae set up a GoFundMe college fund for Alton Sterling's five children, which has raised over $600,000 at the time of recording. Alton Sterling is a black man who was uh, shot several times while being held on the ground by police in Louisiana last week. And Issa Rae is an indie actress and producer who has several popular YouTube shows a lot of them dealing with race in kind of a humorous way, uh, including Awkward Black Girl, which she also made into a book that became a New York Times bestseller. And I feel like, you know, whatever your opinion on these issues, and it's it's pretty nuanced, um, it's an important time to be aware of the context of the headlines and the history behind what's happening. Um, and as always, we turn to movies for this. So uh, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what kind of films address some of these issues? And there are many. Yeah, and I think that what you're saying about whatever your opinion is on these issues, um, it's just you know Im- important to recognize that there is a lot of strife and conflict right now in the United States and around the world. Um, and just as sort of a reflection of these sort of continuous 
escalation of these issues up until they reach a sort of boiling point. One movie I think everyone should check out is Matteo Kasovitz's film Lahane, which is really a classic at this point, but it's more than that. It's sort of one of the more relevant movies to modern society, even though it came out 20 years ago. When I was at IndieWire, I had this kind of hokey TBT column, um, which sounds pretty gimmicky, but I would off, I would really try to like, you know, make it into something with some substance. TBT doesn't stand for Throwback Thursdays. It stood for Throwback Trailers. And so in December, a few weeks after the Paris bombings and sort of in the midst of another big police brutality, I mean, this stuff has been going on for so long, but it has these spikes and ebbs, you know, I decided to write about Lahane's trailer. Um, and I called it the finest American film of 2015 because it was more relevant to race and police brutality issues than any other film that had recently come out, even though it's 20 years old and it's French. Um, so for a little context, when it came out in 1995, France had been caught in the throes of a wave of mass violence, much like what we're seeing today. Um, it was an abnormally warm summer. Paris was subject to two major bombings within a span of three weeks, and the riotous protagonists, the 24-hour time frame, and the frenetic pacing, and also the sweltering hip-hop influences of Lahane sort of evoke this immediate comparison to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which is, of course, another movie dealing with these issues that you should check out if you haven't seen. But the movie really is about a society on its way down. And most importantly, as it's falling, it sort of maintains the status quo of the present present day. And it keeps telling itself, so far, so good, so far, so good, so far, so good, until boom, you know, chaos ensues and things blow up for the protagonist, things blow up in Paris. It's just a cautionary tale for what happens to a society if it becomes too complacent. And if we live in a world where we see all of these problems happening, or if we live in a country where we see all of these problems happening, and we don't at least recognize them and try and make a change for the better, if we just accept the fact that this is the way that things have always been, and that's why they should stay the same, and you know, whether that's the Second Amendment, or police brutality, or systemic institutionalized racism, then we're in for some serious shit. And the events of the past few weeks speak to the dangers of this complacency while Lahane really captures it full hand. I'm glad you mentioned Do the Right Thing because Spike Lee is obviously one of our uh, American filmmakers who deals with race issues um, in this country like the most head on. And even when his films aren't specifically about race, they're always about race. Do the Right Thing is probably the most well-known of these, but he's actually lesser well-known for the documentaries that he's produced. And these are, I think, also important pieces in this canon of films about race relations in America. One of them is called Four Little Girls. It's an historic doc about four African-American girls who were killed in uh, a bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Doc in 1997. And he also uh, produced a film, When the Levees Broke, from 2006 about Hurricane Katrina um, and the racial issues involved in the sort of dealing with the aftermath of that situation, um, which Sheila Nevins, the chief of HBO's documentary unit, said was one of the most important films HBO has ever made. So we're going to be adding to this list, uh, probably for a post on No Film School, we definitely ask for your recommendations as well. What films have you seen that that helped um, better your understanding of the sort of complex underlying issues that are affecting the, the current headlines? 
nothing in our industry really feels uh, serious in comparison to headlines like these. But we are Indie Film Weekly and uh, do have other news items to discuss. Alchemy, an indie film distribution company previously known as Millennium Entertainment, has recently filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy protection. In 2013, they released What Maisie Knew, which is a really underrated film. It was on Netflix for a while. I highly recommend it. And Welcome to Me in 2015, starring Kristen Wiig. They had aggressively been buying up festival titles uh, over the past couple of years. It's sad because there aren't that many indie film distribution companies to speak of. So losing one has a ripple effect on the industry at large. I mean, they picked up The Lobster this year or last year, actually, and had to resell it to A24. Thank God A24 was there to catch it before it fell. But, you know, it's a it's a rough industry. In the indie world, we don't always like to think about our industry as an industry, a money-generating uh, entity, but that is what it is uh, when it comes down to it. So following up that alchemy news, um, New York Times posted an article about a topic that we talk about all the time in the documentary community, um, but when you see it you know, sort of at the journalistic level of the New York Times, it's like, oh, this is a real thing. Um, so basically the issue is the onus on filmmakers to associate their films with a social issue in order to get funding. So we've talked on the show before about some how recently some of the historically larger and more dependable sources of documentary funding have been drying up or shifting focus. The Rockefeller Foundation is no longer directly funding films, and the MacArthur Foundation is funding film organizations rather than individual films. And this article basically makes the argument that to access money from the remaining sources of funding, films have to have some sort of advocacy point of view. They have to take a point of view. Because funders basically want to know that their films will make a social impact. So Deborah Zimmerman from Women Make Movies, who um, are my fiscal sponsor, says in the article that film funding is quote, left to private foundations that are basically created to get tax deductions so they can work on social issues. That's what the role of a foundation is. So, you know, there's pros and cons to this. I think it's an ongoing discussion in our community. I mean, on the plus side, it's not a bad thing that there's funding for social issue documentaries. On the other hand, not all social issue films are advocacy films. Some are more nuanced. They might present both sides of an issue, which means that a foundation that is taking a stance probably wouldn't support them. It also hurts artistic or character-driven documentaries. Some of our greatest docs might not have been able to have been made in this environment. Like Think of the Maisel Brothers documentaries like Grey Gardens, which are really character studies, but they're absolutely fundamental to the field. Or a a more recent film like Dear Zachary, just about a a man and his nephew. Totally. So I think, you know, another issue sort of career-wise, as the um, director of filmmaker services for the International Documentary Association said in the article, her name's Amy Halpern. Amy said, it's a question within the field right now about how much we're asking filmmakers to do other than being filmmakers. We're asking them to drive these activist campaigns that can have career implications. Because when you're speaking at schools and churches and libraries for two years after you've made the movie, you're not making your next movie. And you only get to be a filmmaker every four or five years. So... This is a huge issue. Um, We always try to leave our stories with like a, what can you do? Um, And, you know, I don't know. I think crowdfunding may be one of the answers. Thank goodness that um, is growing. But, you know, as always, we'll keep bringing you grant opportunities on the show. 
and be hoping and advocating for more funding sources for films. I personally take issue with this a little bit because, well, I think documentaries can be really great political instruments. Documentaries inherently reflect the human condition, and we are not 100% political beings. Not everything we do and experience in life is an ish- is a matter of politics. Totally. I mean, that's part of my point is like there are lots of types of documentaries to be made. And how will they get funding if the only sources are basically requiring that you take a political stance? I mean, some would argue that the act of living is political, but that doesn't mean that every film is. In more Dalla Dalla Bills news, um, actor Michael Shannon has been talking about money lately, too. He's probably best known from a very money-making film franchise because he plays General Zod in the new Superman movies. But he's been in a bunch of indies as well. Um, Most recently, uh, he was in Jeff Nichols' Loving, which premiered at Cannes. Did you see that one at Cannes, Emily? I didn't get to see that, no, but people liked it. Yeah. So, you know, he's a well-respected indie actor, and basically he was interviewed by Variety last week. Um, he called the role that he's currently shooting in Joshua Marston's Complete Unknown basically a volunteer effort. And then he kind of went on to say that he feels it's it's unfair treatment to actors in indie films. He's quoted as saying, I think as a group of actors, we need to stop enabling this behavior. There's no reason it should be that way. If somebody's got a good script and you want to put good actors in it, then everybody should be taken care of. Now, of course, as Indie Film Weekly, whew, we have pretty mixed feelings about this one. What do you think, John? You you're an actor and a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't <laughs> I'd say I don't have any mixed feelings about it. Um I totally agree. Um I mean, one of the reasons why I had to, you know, leave that game was because I wasn't getting paid for anything that I actually wanted to do. Um a lot of the best scripts, of course, are going to come from your friends that are collaborators with or that have been collaborating with you in the past and like you know maybe in college it was cool to get by without paying anyone but once you're out like you have to realize that these actors have I think even much less power or agency to be like creating roles for themselves or getting themselves work Um, at least as a director you can sort of spearhead the project and a lot of directors just don't really take actors seriously um I have had directors who are friends who actually like tell me, you know, actors and the way that they feel and their input is always sort of the least of their worries. Which seems so weird because you couldn't have a film without them. Right. Um, And I think they're valuable collaborators. I mean, like having Michael Shannon give you input into like a sort of scene um, is incredibly valuable uh and there's you know there's plenty of undiscovered michael shannons out there that just like haven't had a chance to break onto the scene that doesn't mean that they should be penalized for that by not getting paid i mean that also puts a limit on them for success in the future because if they're not making any money now they might pull a john fusco and switch out of acting and into something that can actually provide them with some stability and some agency and some power so yeah i i have some feelings about this um (laughs) yeah like the the things that i would want to do when i was acting i wouldn't necessarily be getting paid for which is fine and which is great but Obviously, it had an effect on my career. I ended up, you know, having to take stupid extra jobs to actually make money or like, you know, no serious actor, I think, would 
tell you that their dream in life is to like smile for a camera and like make twenty thousand dollars in a dental commercial um, to show off their teeth. Have they, you guys found that on when it comes to production budget cuts, um, that actors are kind of the first crew member to go. In no, terms yeah, of absolutely, salary. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Like when I said I have mixed feelings about this, I think it's because everybody gets lower or lesser or no pay on a lot of indie films. Like, unfortunately, that's the way it is. I I don't think it's right for Michael Shannon. To, I mean, he is an actor, but he's sort of implying that actors are the only ones that take the short shrift on indies. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that, you know, there's sort of a plethora of actors out there, you know, like if there's a DP that a director wants, he's going to pay that DP to be there because that's the only DP that he like needs to work with. Or there's on the other hand, almost everybody below the line might be getting less than their day rate or no day rate. To be yeah, part of that film. That's possible, but I agree with what Emily's saying in that the actor is sort of the first to go because there's always an eager actor that's willing to provide their services. Mm. It's not necessarily the same for crew members who have this sort of established skill. Acting isn't necessarily like a skill set that you learn. It's something that you're you have it or you don't have gifted it. with or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's it's a DP or a camera operator or a sound person. Those are skills that you actually have to go out and learn. And not everyone. There's not as wide of a range of pool of those types of people, those types of crew with that sort of skill set to choose from. Yeah, I think there just has to be some compromise on both sides, because if directors waited forever to get all the money that they'd really like to have to pay everybody what they'd really like to pay them, the films might never get made. So I think it's a really tricky one. But of course, in the end, the best thing is that everyone gets compensated fairly. Yeah. (laughs) We want to give a special thanks to Musicbed for sponsoring this week's podcast. Ever since Musicbed entered the industry, they've been changing the music licensing game for us filmmakers. There's no more sifting through endless production catalogs or settling for a song that like just kind of works. They've signed with more than 600 of the world's best indie artists and composers. That means incredible music for your projects with friendly staff and an easy-to-search catalog to help you find it. This catalog represents artists in so many different genres, from indie veterans like Need to Breathe, Kai Kai, Ben Rector, Parade of Lights, and my pals in one of my favorite bands, Paper Moons. It also includes classic artists like Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis. So head on over to musicbed.com to explore their catalog, read up on a blog, see their latest film, or just chat with a music expert. Right now, this is the best part, they're offering 20% off a single license just for Indie Film Weekly listeners. You can get the discount by entering the promo code SCHOOLSOUT when you check out. That's S-C-H-O-O-L-S-O-U-T when you check out. There's no better time to find the perfect soundtrack for your latest project. So... Uh, moving on to gear news, I have been doing this for the past like couple of weeks, but Emily, let's have you start off the gear news this week. Well, Michael Shannon was also in a great film called Take Shelter, which I highly recommend. The director of that was Jeff Nichols, and last week we had a No Film School writer interview him. He had very strong opinions on the film versus digital debate, and I thought that was the most interesting meat of the article. He shot every one of his movies on film, and he believes in film not just for its look, but more importantly, for its intentionality. Here's Nichols on his decision to shoot film. The reason I shoot on film is is one, is because 
you know, it's not just an aesthetic decision. It, it affects kind of the process. It affects how you operate on set. Something happens, I think, on set when you're shooting film, even in terms of the actors, they just understand that there's this finite resource. Even if nobody's like, hey, we shot too much film today, you feel, I think, in, you know, everybody you know, quiet on the set and it's like roll sound, sound rolling, you know, roll camera. Yeah. Uh, you can you can feel that what you're doing is um, is a kind of physical process that's hopefully going to capture something, as opposed to you've just constantly got this digital camera rolling. I think it's right. a psychological kind of difference. I don't know. It focuses people, in in my opinion, in a in a in a cool way, in a positive way. I'm a big believer on making decisions on set. I, I think um, I think a lot of the aesthetic decisions have been kind of punted into post, you know, that when you get into the editing room, you just want choices. Like, how dare you limit yourself on set? Because why didn't you put up three more cameras shooting digital and, you know, like, exactly capture all this stuff. But I think that somehow, <laughs> and there's certainly directors that, that work that way that make amazing films, but I think it kind of dilutes the, <clears throat> the role of the director to a degree Interesting stuff. You can catch Midnight Special on Amazon Prime and on iTunes. If you're not into the whole film side of the film versus digital debate, then this is some pretty exciting news for you as Red has introduced Helium, a new 8K 35mm sensor for their Red Weapon and their upcoming Epic W. Is that double 4K, essentially? Yeah, that's double 4K. It's a stupid question, but does it look like it? Have you seen the footage? I have not seen any footage. Um, I don't think I've ever actually seen any 8K footage, but not to bring it back to this article or this interview we had with the Kodak president a few weeks ago, um, but one of the things he was talking about in sort of the debate was that we're going to be going 4K, 8K, 16K, 32K, and we're just going to be seeing more and more advances very rapidly. So you're going to have to keep up with these sort of new resolutions and, you know, buy whatever adapters or new parts you need to make it possible for you to shoot 8K while film will always be constant. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But the other thing to keep in mind is that Red has developed this camera for Michael Bay, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, it's cool, um, but it's it's flashy. This custom camera that they built for him has like lime green casing and like, I don't know, it makes a lot of sense for his <laughs> massive explosion style, but um, it's cool that apparently they got this out much earlier than they'd expected to get out and it's going to be ready for their newest camera. Red Digital Cinema's president, Jared Land, and Chief Design Officer Matthew Trembley announced the new sensor line, um, which squeezes 8K into a smaller super 35mm chip, which also necessitates new, smaller, denser pixels. Apparently, though, smaller doesn't mean that any compromise is going to be made in imaging performance. In fact, it's supposedly the opposite. Um, These are better pixels. Whatever that means. Whatever that (laughs) means. The weapon magnesium will be updated with this new helium sensor, and then, as I said before, the new Epic W is going to come equipped with it. So you can expect it in probably most of the red cameras to come out until 16K comes out. Um, you can check out pictures of Michael Bay's custom camera in the article, and it's it's pretty cool. It's interesting that just at uh, NAB we kind of reported that, like, oh, we're in a plateau for cameras, and there's not a lot of, like, new camera developments, and then bam. Well, it seems to be that it's like an every other year thing, right? So it's like the software was 
big this year, which means next year there'll be a lot more announcements in hardware. Mm. Um, and it seems I'm not really sure when the Epic W is slated for release, but if it's next year, could be around NAB, and we're going to be seeing, I'm sure, a ton more AK products at NAB next year. Makes sense. We'll keep you guys posted. Another camera that's being released is Fujifilm's new 4K video camera. It's their flagship camera, uh, but they've updated it to 4K. That's the X-T2 mirrorless camera. We have a new tech writer here, Darren, and he describes the camera as dipped in a 4K candy shell, which I like. The DSLR-shaped APS-C camera harnesses a 23.6 millimeter by 15.6 millimeter X-Trans CMOS 3 sensor and a randomized pixel array that reduces aliasing and more without the need of an optical low-pass filter. The X2 is also equipped with the X-Processor Pro, which boosts startup time, continuous shooting modes, and write speeds. Combined, these two features provide faster autofocus and a better image quality that also mimics the organic nature of film. The only caveat is that you only get 10 minutes of recording time Ooh. in 4K. Um, which you know, I I don't know, you know, if you're if you're shooting many long shots, that could be an issue, but it shouldn't be that big of a deal if uh, you know you're not if you're shoot if most of your scenes are under ten minutes, which is I think pretty standard. Definitely not made for documentaries, though. No, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely not. And the footage you can check out some of the footage in the article, but the footage is uh, it's interesting. It's very bright, um, and while it says it sort of mimics the organic nature of film I, I think you should go check it out and judge it for yourself because it's got this real sort of like dynamic range quality to it that being said it's relatively inexpensive it's $1,600 for the body and you can get a sort of starter kit from B&H which includes a 18 to 55 millimeter lens um, and that will only cost you $300 more uh, $1,900 total okay let's talk about the elephant in the room right now <laughs> <laughs> you mean the Pikachu in the room yeah <laughs> Okay, I was out the other day and I saw a kind of young 20s couple seem to be on a date and they stopped in the middle of the street. Oh, they were walking around. They were both looking at their phones, which didn't seem that romantic to me. And the guy stops and he goes, oh, my bleeping God, I got a Jigglypuff or some something. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And then they almost got hit by a car and I realized they were playing Pokemon Go. Did you hear that the White House is a gym? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's back up. Yeah, let's let's back up before before we start talking about the app itself. Um, let's talk about sort of the implications that this technology has on the future. I guess of yeah, the future of storytelling because. At South by Southwest, we heard a lot about VR and AR. I was hearing a lot about it from, uh, you know, Liz and Ryan and the people who actually got the chance to go down to Austin and check out some of the conferences. But while I'd heard about VR and while I'd seen sort of what it could do, augmented reality was sort of a harder concept to wrap my head around. I remember while we were trying to talk about it on the podcast, it was almost impossible to explain. Well, have you guys seen the film Creative Control, which came out this year? No. Okay. In that was one of the first fiction narrative films that I've ever seen that features AR. Everybody wears these glasses that essentially show them what reality is, but with extra information. It's sort of like Google Glass 
Well, maybe Google Glass is a decent example of augmented reality. The company that actually developed Pokemon Go is a startup that's being backed by Google. So, I mean, it's it it all works off of the sort of Google Maps uh, programming franchise. Franchise. Well, what's like yeah. a basic definition of AR? I was just gonna say, like, now that we have Pokemon Go as a sort of lens to augmented reality, it's so much easier to understand, uh-huh. um, and it's. Everyone, I mean, everyone is using it now every day, it seems like. But the New York Times uh, defines augmented reality as fusing digital technology with the physical world. So overlaying digital imagery on a person's view of the real world using a smartphone screen or a headset, which is what Emily was getting into. Right. Another interesting thing is that we haven't had, you know, this sort of practical application of AR yet. As Emily was saying, usually it you need, you need like a headset or you need some extra expensive equipment. But with Pokemon Go, and one of the reasons it's so successful and why it's sort of an important moment for augmented reality is because they've achieved an application of augmented reality that doesn't require a headset. It's just on your phone and you can... I mean, everyone's on their phone all the time anyway, so you can just use that outside. For people who don't know, like, what is it? What is the game? If you've been living under a rock for the past week, (laughs) then, I mean, and if you've never played Pokemon, it's basically the same thing as Pokemon. It's like you go out around the street and you find Pokemon, I guess, that are lying around (laughs) so you're like trying to collect pokemon characters and how does your phone come into it i mean this is where the augmented reality comes in is you're 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 looking through your phone at the world and then they overlay a uh animation of the pokemon that you're trying to catch onto the onto the real world but since the gyms are located in the physical world and the other information they must have sophisticated gps information yeah well i mean it's a supposed to be like you find certain types of Pokemon at certain types of landmarks or certain types of geographical locations. So like you find water Pokemon at like a lake or you find like uh, apparently like if you go out at night, you find like ghost Pokemon. It's pretty cool. It's pretty attuned to the uh, the Google Maps sort of element. But, but so that makes sense, though, that why there's been these like controversies. I didn't really understand until you just explained it. Right. So, I mean, the most messed up thing I heard. The body? No. This is even more messed up. Because, yeah. oh, wow. I mean, for people who don't know, a Pokemon Go player who is using the app stumbled upon a dead body. Um, but I don't think that was really the consequence of like programming you know no, the controversial sort of a, stuff has been more like baked into the game right so the most fucked up thing i heard was that at the holocaust museum apparently i mean there's a ton of people on their phone trying to catch pokemon there which is kind of disrespectful you know on its own right but the pokemon that is most prevalent at the holocaust museum is a pokemon called coughing um and for those of you who aren't nerds uh coughing is a gas pokemon oh that is like a giant round sphere that just emits gas no. and sort of like poisonous gas and like that's how they kill their enemy so oh pokemon game designers yeah so what I, the oh jesus i mean i don't know i don't know how that happened but i think they've changed it since then um just kind of 
super wow. screwed up. I mean, I've heard of other ones too, like there, there, you like the nine eleven memorial was a collection point, which is a bit weird. Oh, and then, God. like one guy's um, lawn was like his personal yard was mistaken for a a spot. Like there was some programming error, so all these young people were like running around this private yard. Yeah, and, it's weird. This isn't really why augmented reality was developed in the first place. Um, it was mostly developed for specialized businesses to use as like, you know, previs basically. Um, and that's where it'll come into help for filmmakers. Hopefully in the future, you can use it as a pre-production tool and you can plan your shots in a much more sort of, uh, efficient manner. Yeah. I guess, especially if you're doing like sci-fi or things where that don't exist in the real world and you can kind of manufacture them. I also think it'll, I'm really excited to see how it comes into play for filmmakers who are going outside of the box of traditional film and trying to tell stories in different ways or like augment their own films. Like say there's a film you watch in the theaters, but then you can continue to follow the story in the real world with AR. I mean, the possibilities are endless. Okay, that's enough about Pokemon Go. Let's get into some grant deadlines. The only one we have this week is for the Southern Documentary Fund Filmmaking Grant, which you can apply to by July 31st. If you live in North Carolina or have a story set there, you could get $1,000 to $5,000 for development, production, or post-production from the Southern Documentary Fund. So I bet, Ryan, wherever you are, you're pretty stoked about that. I think because we've had so much other interesting news, we're just going to stick to one festival deadline as well because it's a big one. Um, Tomorrow, July 15th, is the final deadline to submit for AFI Fest, which takes place in L.A., and it's, it's a huge industry event. It's sponsored by the American Film Institute. It's kind of a haven for micro-budget filmmaking. A lot of the people that I know that make films on a you know, $100,000 minus scale aim for AFI Fest. These are narrative films, by the way. Yeah. Also, it's a, uh, it, the Academy recognizes AFI as a qualifying festival for both of the short film categories. So, so particularly if you've got a short, make sure you don't miss the deadline tomorrow to submit for AFI Fest. Uh, okay. I'm going to lob up a big fat no film school question for you here, Liz. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, here it comes. Damien Billick asks, and this is something that we've discussed prior on previous shows, what is the best distribution strategy for no-budget films? Yeah, Damien, in his question, he, uh, on the boards at No Film School, goes on and sort of has, he hasn't even started shooting the film yet, and he's sort of laid out an entire potential distribution strategy. So, Damien, I commend you for starting to think about this now. Yes, good. Um, although that being said, like it's part of, of your strategy is obviously going to depend on how the film turns out and how well it does on the festival circuit, because that might open certain opportunities that you couldn't necessarily envision right now. Um, so I think you can, you can start to think about it, but you can't necessarily set a firm plan, uh, from the get go. Although one thing you can, and definitely, definitely should do from the beginning is start to build an audience and support for the film because this will help you in the long run no matter what distribution path you take um, it's almost impossible to just create an audience out of thin air but we have so many tools now to start reaching out to people as early as pre-production through crowdfunding for example or through promoting your film on social media and letting out you know production stills and just getting people excited about the film well you know well in advance um, networking right yeah networking not only networking with peers, but networking with potential audience members. 
Yeah, um, if you have a special interest that your film is targeting, definitely harness that community. Mm-hmm, for sure. And as far as distribution, um, we have two really recent articles, so they're pretty up to date um, in terms of answering your question about different forms of self-distribution. So Nikhil Kamal-Kokar, uh, director of Indian Cowboy, wrote about his whole experience, um, why he chose to use Amazon Video Direct, which um, Damien asked about in his question. And our own regular uh, No Film School writer, Oakley Anderson Moore, wrote about doing a tug tour, a theatrical distribution tour, um, sort of self-distributed with her film, Brave New Wild. And you also, by the way, asked about self-distribution versus small established distribution companies. And I actually don't think those necessarily have to compete. I think you just um, have to figure out what you can do best yourself and what you might want to use a distributor for. So, for example, you might want to use Tug for a theatrical release, but you might not want to deal with like an educational distribution plan. So just make sure that if you are going to go with a, an outside distributor who's not yourself, that you don't um, sign away all the rights to distribution and that you carve out the parts that you want to keep um, in charge of yourself. Cool. Good luck with the film and let us know what you decide to do. Here are some movies that you can start streaming this week. Amazon Prime Instant is going to be featuring a movie that I've been really excited about seeing for a while. I tried to see it at Sundance. I had a conflict, so I couldn't do it, but I used one of my 10 press tickets on it, even though it had been screening at like Con and all the, sorry, can and all of these other festivals around the world um that movie is embrace of the serpent uh which was nominated for the best foreign film this year it's written and directed by ciro guerra it's shot in black and white in the amazon rainforest and it follows the relationship between an amazonian shaman and the last survivor of his people and two separate scientists who encounter him uh over the course of 40 years to search the amazon for a sacred healing plant it's supposed to be one of the most beautiful films of last year, and it's really been on my watch list for a while. I would say that it was actually my favorite film I saw last year. Really? Wow. The best way I can describe it is that it cultivates and maintains this sense of wonder and ecstasy that is very, very rare in movies. Is it about ayahuasca? Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But no, I, I mean that's that's I mean it's an interesting drug. So is that is that the sacred healing plant that they're talking about or are I we mean, is that a spoiler? Are we That that doesn't come into play until the very end. It's mostly the the themes that it revolves around are discovery, imperialism, um, you know, the the relationship between man and nature. It's really less about the drug and more about the social themes. Would you say it's like the Colombian Terrence Malick? No. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Embrace of the Serpent. On Netflix today, Gridlocked is coming out. It's a cop action movie starring Dominic Purcell, who I think is really foxy, and Cody Hackman. It starts off as kind of a buddy comedy, but it turns deadly serious when a police training facility is attacked by a team of mercenaries. Um, the thing that's especially cool about this movie is that we have an amazingly detailed post by the director, Alan Unger, about how to shoot action on a budget. And he goes from pre to post-production. He includes all kinds of really specific tips. Like he says um, they used a lot of what he calls the 24 effect. Um, and he says it delivers in spades if you can't afford a blood squib. 
basically for the majority of action scenes in 24, the show 24, he's saying you couldn't find a single henchman that went down without an effect other than a muzzle flash and a hard fall. So something as simple as that. He says usually you'd see uh, a shot of Kiefer firing blanks and then the edit would just cut to a quick in-camera zoom of a stuntman wiping out. So uh, the article is chock full of tips. I definitely uh, recommend checking it out if you are thinking about shooting an action film. On the 15th, tomorrow, uh, another film's hitting Netflix, Tony Robbins' I Am Not Your Guru, um, which also has a simultaneous theatrical release. This is a documentary by legendary filmmaker Joe Berlinger about the motivational speaker Tony Robbins and the sort of transformative experience of his annual uh, Date with Destiny event in Florida. Um, I did a podcast with Joe Berlinger back at South by Southwest about the film and about Joe's career, and uh, he's got some interesting stuff to say, so we'll put a link to it in the post associated with this podcast. And opening in theaters this week is Equals, directed by Drake Dormis and starring Kristen Stewart and Nicholas Holt. It's a sci-fi love story that basically tries to take a page from The Giver's Book. I saw it and wrote about it at Tribeca, where I also spoke to Dormis about what is his first ever sci-fi effort. He maintained that although the film is sci-fi, it's primarily a love story at the center. Therefore, it doesn't differ much from his previous work, such as Like Crazy and Breathe. Here's Dormis on Equals. Well, I think what's the most captivating part about it is that it's, it's unquantifiable. It's something that I just can't quite put my finger on. It doesn't make sense having it, losing it, holding on to it, maintaining it, understanding it. I mean, these questions and things that just... You know, it never, I never fully understand it. There's, anytime I have questions, it just, I have more questions and more questions and never really get answers. So it's just like, you know, chasing this, this dragon, essentially, that's just it's this beautiful, big, fire-breathing dragon that you just can't quite pin down. Well, this one, to me, is sort of a metaphor for, like, a long-term relationship more than anything and, and feeling something and understanding that you feel it and then... And then over the course of time, as things change and, and relationships are sort of develops and becomes something else, you have to remember why you're in it and what it means to you. So for me, it really is about it, it's about examining something over the course of time, as opposed to whereas maybe the previous films was more about examining a moment and a feeling and being in that moment. This is more about you know over the course of time, what really matters and really thinking about that. We always encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, to rate us on iTunes, to reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at Liz Film. I'd just like to say Drake Dormouse is my favorite rapper in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> Embrace your serpent. <laughs> oh, I do. Yeah, that pretty much sounds like not the kind of movie we usually make here at No Film School. Um, anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, check us out on iTunes, please. And um, we're on Twitter. Yeah, there's more gems like that if you follow me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John Jim. That's Jim John Jim. Have you ever thought about changing your Twitter name to at email booter? Email? <laughs> wow. Well, this show started out real serious. It's and we've just here. We've gone completely downhill. <laughs> so we'll see you all next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye.